You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wine, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is. Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Mackenzie Lee on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It's called The Nobleman's Guide to Scandal and Shipwrecks, and it's the third book in the Montague Siblings series. Uh, this book is so much fun, uh, and I, I know it's it. there's someone on your uh, on your gift giving list uh, for this holiday season coming up that I know uh, will love this book as well as you. So this needs to be sitting on your to be read pile by your favorite reading chair and, you know, maybe stock, uh, stuff some stockings with it as well. Welcome to the show, Mackenzie. Thank you for having me. I hate to tell you the book is a little bit long, so I don't know if it's going to fit in a stocking. <laughs> but You know, I was I was kind of thinking about that, that, uh, you know, or. Yeah, you know, some some sometimes you just need a good, you know, doorstop in your stocking. Right. You just need to upgrade your stocking to fit the, <laughs> That's what that's what book. it is. That's what it is. The problem is not upgrade. the book. The problem is your stocking. That's exactly right. That's exactly <laughs> right. Uh, Mackenzie, before we get into talking all about books, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Oh, God, I thought you were going to say, what is your first memory? And I was like, wow, this is like a therapy session. Um, uh, my first memory of wanting to be a writer. Oh, boy. Um, I OK, so I, I I loved writing when I was a kid. I loved reading when I was a kid, but I wasn't a very good reader. Um, I like to sort of read the same books over and over again. I was really into like the the Star Wars novels that the Scholastic Book Order put out. I didn't want anything too challenging and hard. And so when I kind of when I got a little bit older and English class was sort of forced upon me and it forced all these classic books upon me that that made me feel like an idiot because I just couldn't understand them. I sort of lost my love of writing and lost my lost my interest in creative writing. And I think it, creative writing was not something that was really fostered uh, in my in my middle and high school setting. But I do remember as a kid, like probably nine or 10 years old, uh, handwriting short story, short story, I, I guess they were short stories. I think in my brain, I was like, this is a novel. It's 10 whole handwritten pages. Right. <laughs> um, that's the longest thing anyone's ever written. Tolstoy who? Um, and I wrote them in a very, very pink, very sparkly notebook and, uh, took them into our local library. We went to the library every Wednesday, my mom and my sister and I, and I would give them to my favorite children's librarian. Her name was Janelle. Um, and she would read them. And then the next week she would give me my notebook back and she would have written these like lovely, thoughtful notes on them in in thought notes that were far, far too good for the stories that 10 year old me was, was giving her. Um, but that's probably my first memory. Cause I remember how important it was to me and how much it meant to me that Janelle took me seriously, um, as a, as a reader, as a writer, as a storyteller, as a human being, like, I think as kids, 
that the sort of first adults to treat you like a real person is always that's an impactful thing. It, isn't that amazing how that little bit of encouragement and and it was nothing to to Janelle, I, I'm sure. I mean, it you know, it didn't occupy the majority of her day or, or anything like that. But to you, you know, here we are years later talking about that moment and what an impact that had. Um, yeah. I, I think we, we don't think uh, sometimes, uh, you know, what the weight of our encouragement might be to someone, uh, you know, and it's it's, it's nothing to to do that for someone and you just never know what impact it's going to have. Yeah. And I mean, she was a, she was your, your dream librarian. I remember we, we often tell the story of when my sister was about four years old, her going up to Janelle's desk and saying very seriously, I need the book about the pink kitty. We're all like, <laughs> what? And uh, Janelle sat there with her for, I think it was a multiple weeks long process, just going through like, is it this book? Is it this book? Is it this book? And they did eventually find what my sister had called the pink kitty book, which did feature a kitty, but not a pink kitty. So there was some, uh, some false memories <laughs> going on there. Um, but she was, and and I remember her keeping me sated on a diet of historical fiction featuring these sort of plucky, plucky young women. Um, and as a result of that, I feel like I, I, grew up wanting to study history, but also grew up never doubting that that women had a place in history, which has ended up being very, very influential on on what I write now. So, yeah, shout out to her. Absolutely. You know, God love Janelle. That's that's amazing. (laughs) Um, How do you go from uh, being uh, someone who loves the scholastic Star Wars books to historical fiction? What, What was the bridge there for you? I don't think there ever really was a bridge. They both just kind of uh, coexisted in my brain. Um, I, I did. So I came of age in a, in, in a really sweet spot for star Wars fans, which is I was old enough when the prequel movies came out that I was so excited that there was more star Wars. And the fact that there was going to be a new star Wars movie was just like the highlight of my young life, but I was young enough that I didn't realize they were terrible um, so it was really, it's just like, I still have such a fond, a fond place in my heart for the terrible prequel movies. And in fact, <laughs> I, I did like a librarian dinner several years ago at ALA where they, the authors they had featured, there were like five of us. They would do it. They did a couple of different little like icebreaker questions with us. And one of them was what's a movie you love that everybody else hates. And we were going down the row and everybody was saying these like, fun kind of campy bad movies and all the librarians would sort of be like oh no that's a great movie we love that one you know and then it got to me and I said I love the Star Wars prequels and I got booed by a room (laughs) full of librarians it was so traumatic (laughs) oh no um but yeah it was never really a bridge between them so much as they just I people contain multitudes and I loved them both and um as I as I got older I took history into a more, I think, academic place. Like I wasn't as big of a historical fiction. I wasn't a reader though, when I was a teenager, um, cause young adult wasn't really a thing. Um, yeah. and I was not, uh, I was not a good enough reader to really digest and love adult books. I was not that kid that like went from scholastic book orders immediately into Stephen King and was like, this is great. Um, and so I, I wasn't a big reader when I was a teenager, but I was a I was a fan fiction reader and I was a fan fiction writer and I wrote a lot of Star Wars fan fiction um, and then just really loved history and studied it. And 
um, excelled at it and thought I wanted to be a historian until I, I started prepping for a thesis. And my thesis advisor told me I couldn't write dialogue for Richard III and Henry V in my academic papers. And maybe I should try something else. <laughs> well, Mackenzie, I envy your um, uh, your Star Wars naivete um, <laughs> because I was old enough to know that those were horrible movies. And, and I, I wish I could be in your shoes. That's, you know, some people just just poo poo them all together. But I I I was uh, I was the first trilogy, you know, when I was a young person. And I remember the magic of that. And I. I wish I could have experienced that magic. I, I had a son uh, at the time, and we watched the prequel trilogy, and he loved it. And I just remember watching him and and thinking that he's experiencing the same kind of magic that I did, and and that was enough for me. Oh, that's very sweet. Yeah. So, um, studying history, what was was there a a particular uh, you know story from the past, a, a particular um, you know um, and, I don't want to say character, but a, a, a an historical person um, who just really intrigued you that that kind of stoked that wanting to dig and, you know, find out about these true stories that, you know, seem fantastical at times. Um, I'm not sure if there was a. Not, not well, I don't know, in my sort of earliest days of of studying history, like in high school, it was always sort of history felt like a like a, a shared experience by a lot of people. Um, I wasn't great. And I think our American education system is not great at teaching history as a individual lived experience with as much variety as, as we experience today. We think of it instead as something that everybody experienced the same way in mass. Um, but I, I, um, my, my first job in high school was as a blacksmith at a civil war era reenactment park like you do. Um, it, it was it was it was an adventure. It was a form. It was a formative experience. Um, and I think because of that, I was very into. I was very interested in that period of history for a while because I was sort of in the thick of it and uh, living it in a way. <laughs> sure. Um, sure. I, I often tell people I grew up in the 19th century. Um, <laughs> uh, and then I, I, I'm trying to think of the first like historical figures I really, I really imprinted on. You know, actually, you know, the first one was uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Um, I had a book when I was a kid called Lives of Extraordinary Women, um, and I, her, uh, there was a story about her in there, and the, it was like picture, it was like these great illustrations, and then like essays about their life. And I think at the time I got the book, the essays were slightly too long for me, but I loved the pictures. Um, but I do remember that essay about her. And then later on, I discovered the the play slash movie, The Lion in Winter, which is a fictionalized uh, uh, right. reimagining of it's essentially what what Spencer is going to be for for Princess Diana. It's sort of that except about right. the second and Eleanor of Aquitaine over this like one Christmas that changes their lives. And then I got very excited when I realized that her story sort of connects to Richard the Lionheart and Prince John. And I'm a big my favorite movie is Disney's animated Robin Hood. And uh, so it all sort of came full circle. And also, I just really loved Eleanor as a as a sort of uh, wild, precocious, ambitious woman who was queen of both France and England in her lifetime and outlived most of her children and both of her husbands and survived wars and formed this court of of 
chivalry and art and and just like survived. Um, and I love I still love Eleanor. She was one of the first first historical people to really to really grab me by the throat. <laughs> I only have one thing to say about Disney's Robin Hood, and that is Uda Lolly. What a golly, what a day. Golly, what a day. <laughs> <laughs> I just went to I just went to Disneyland with a couple of friends to celebrate one of my friends' birthdays and we went to the Halloween party and I finally got to live out a lifelong dream, which is I have always wanted to do a group costume of the many disguises that Robin Hood wears in the Disney movie. And I've never had friends that would commit to it, or I'm always sort of, if I've ever done it, if every group costume I've ever done, I'm always in like full green body paint and everybody else is like, I wore a set of cat ears. I'm always way too overdressed <laughs> for it. And so I, I finally found the friends and the setting and we did the the Robin Hood disguises costume. And uh, it, it really, I feel like I, I feel like I've peaked. Like, I don't know where I go from here in terms of in terms of both both costumes, but also just kind of life. Like, there's never going to be a high quite like walking through Disneyland uh, in the disguises of Robin Hood group costume. You know, I don't know how, how you top that either, Mackenzie. So uh, yeah. it was nice talking to you. Glad we could do this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, Mackenzie, uh, you mentioned something earlier that uh, that I want to touch on for just a moment. Um, you said that you began writing fan fiction and. Um, fan fiction is is an interesting thing because very rarely do we talk about that as being a step that people can use in their writer journey. Um, you know, uh, and you know, lots of different reasons why people write and read fan fiction, and um, it, it, I think a lot of people have done that, and and they don't talk about it very much. What what kind of role did that play in your creative growth? Well, for me, it was it was learning how to write before I realized that's what I was doing. Um, yeah. I I so I also grew up in an, in and in, in spite of being being the perfect age for the Star Wars prequels, it was not a great time to be a Star Wars fan, especially as a as a girl. Um, it was it was a deeply uncool thing, and being a nerd was not sort of mainstream and cool in the way that it is now. Sure. And so. Um, I, I sort of kept my my Star Wars obsession a secret for a long time. And if my teenage self knew that I would now go on like podcasts and do interviews where I talked about writing writing fan fiction, I would have changed my name and moved to a different country. Like I would it was my like great shameful secret. Um but but for me, fan fiction was, like I said, learning to write before I knew that that's what I was doing. Um and how I I just wanted more Star Wars and I just wanted more I think too, I was looking for slightly more adult versions of the the books that I'd loved as a kid, uh, but not quite the adult books because those were those were doorstops and those were too long for me. And I didn't want to read Timothy Zahn's 800 pages. <laughs> right. uh, and so, yeah, when I started writing fan fiction, I, I, you, and I think it's so important to so many people because you have an existing universe, you have an existing sort of playground to work within. You have characters you know, and so you get to practice things without having to do, it's almost like writing with training wheels. Um, Cause you get to, you get to practice things without having to do all the world building yourself, all the character building yourself. And um, I think it's also really important cause you get to interrogate the things you love and say, I really love Star Wars, but I wish there were more women in it. Or I really love Star Wars, but I wish there were more queer people in it. 
um, I recently got asked in an interview, like who the, the first, the first queer couple I saw in fiction was, and I said, Anakin and Obi-Wan, because that was, that was sort of my introduction to, to, uh, to my own sexuality, frankly, was reading, was reading Star Wars slash fiction. Um, and I think that's so important as, as writers now, and especially in the marketplace we're in now where we're, we're really looking closely at underrepresented groups and trying to bring those voices to, to mainstream stories into these big universes. I think for a lot of us, it was a really important time. Uh, we're writing fan fiction was a really important activity in terms of interrogating the things we loved and saying, where can they do better? And how can I specifically do better in my own work? Dabble is a proud sponsor of Author Stories. Dabble is an easy-to-use cloud-based writing tool that gives writers a way to organize, plot, and create amazing stories wherever they are. Write in our desktop app, on your Mac or Windows computer, tablet, or mobile device. Dabble syncs your latest version with the cloud on all your devices. Write anywhere and anytime inspiration strikes. We got you. Dabble is my preferred writing tool, and I think it will be yours as well. Visit DabbleWriter.com for your free trial. You have an amazing story idea. You execute the writing and editing flawlessly, and now the only thing missing are readers. We can help you go from author to author superhero with Story Origin. Story Origin is a one-stop shop for marketing tools with a community of amazing authors working together to find reviewers, build mailing lists, increase sales, and collect feedback from beta readers. Everything an author needs, all in one place from providing review copies or beta copies, reader magnets to ensure you stay connected with readers, easily distribute audio promo codes, universal retail links to send readers directly to the proper point of purchase, or provide direct download links for members of your mailing list. Story Origin has all the tools you need in one easy-to-use site. Use the promo code ASP21 at checkout when subscribing to the yearly plan, and you will get 10% off your first year. This code will expire December 31st, so hurry over and subscribe now. StoryOriginApp.com Do you feel like you bring those same sensibilities to writing um, historical fiction now? Like the uh, the Montague siblings series is uh, is fun. Uh, you know, there's there's a there's a certain um, campiness is not the right word. That that's I, I don't mean yeah, that, but there's a fun to it. I think that's a wonderful word for them, frankly. That uh, do, do you feel like that? Like, how did you decide to bring that sort of sensibility into historical fiction because so much historical fiction that we see today is very serious and oh, yeah. uh, and and really locks on to the historical aspect of historical fiction and and we just get this feeling like these these stories are you know that we're we're kind of filling in the cracks of 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 what we know um you know so that's the the fiction part but we're you know, there, there's kind of these tent poles that you can't touch and you can't you can't bring humor and, and you know, can't bring levity to it. Um, how, how do you what was your what was it that uh, that kind of led you to this path of writing the kinds of books that you do now? 
Well, my favorite historical stories and the stories that always made me fall in love with history are the sort of tropey fictional adventure stories, whether it's Treasure Island or Pirates of the Caribbean, or uh, I was aggressively recommending on Instagram last night a book series called Jackie, the Jackie Faber books by L.A. Meyer that are all these like fun, silly adventure stories set in history. Um and I, I I agree with you that so much historical fiction is just so punishingly sad and so and so dour, and it gives us this idea of people in the past being defined by defined by tragedy and defined by the hardships of their era, but also as being sort of humorless, humorless and bleak. When we know that's not true. Um, because we have, I mean, if you look at the 18th century, we have, which is when the Gentleman's Guide and Montague books are set, uh, we have satirical writing from that time. We have political cartoons. We have we have the equivalent of like memes essentially from that time period. So we know that it wasn't all it wasn't all <laughs> I don't know sexism and cholera, um, but it can feel that way, and it can feel like that's all we focus on. And I think it's so important to acknowledge the the individual the individual experience of history. Um, and I, I talk about this a lot, especially in relation to, because the first book is about a, the main character is bisexual. The second one, uh, it's she's a woman. And then the third one, um, Adrian, who's the main character, is dealing with uh, really intense anxiety. And so it's essentially, the, you know, the really fun topics of uh, sexuality in history, sexism in history, and mental illness in history. But they're super fun, I promise. Um, but But I think when we talk now about say like being queer in America today, we understand that there is the idea of being a queer person in America is impacted by so many different things, whether it's your your race, your religion, your socioeconomic station, and there's so many different different things that affect it. Um, but we don't tend to grant that same individuality to people in history. And we tend to just say everybody who was gay before rent came out was sad and oppressed and couldn't be with the people they loved. Um, and so I think part of it for me was also falling into the trap of believing that. And then when I sort of branched out on my own and started doing my own work and my own research and and searching for stories, I started to find these stories of happy queer people in history and about women who found ways to subvert the the patriarchal institutions they were in um, and do do work they wanted to. And it just sort of started to feel disingenuous to represent the past as as something something other than that um and to not acknowledge this sort of individual lived experience and and that and just that there were ways for 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 people to be happy um and for people to have full rich incredible lives with the people they loved and doing the work they they loved not not in spite of who they were but because of it I got yeah. kind of off track as I was. No, no, that was there. perfect. Like I just um, started soapboxing. Yeah. Um, did that answer your question? Yes, of? yes, <laughs> absolutely. If if your next series is not titled "Sexism and Cholera," um, you've, you've missed an opportunity. <laughs> That's the last guidebook. Uh, right. The Gentleman's Guide to Sexism and Cholera. <laughs> right. Rejected title. So where did the idea for the Montague siblings uh, series come from? You know, and, and I love to hear about kind of the the moment of birth for for ideas, because in, at one moment, 
none of these characters existed none of the uh, situations existed they just didn't exist and then either a character walked onto the stage of your mind or you started thinking about uh, an historical setting and start playing the what if game and and then you you know cast the situation with characters from from this or that and then and then in in one form or fashion it does exist and then it's your job as the writer to kind of excavate that story and to to dig it out um what was that moment of inspiration for you yeah, the alchemy of storytelling and the the act of sort of creating something out of nothing is something I can't I can't think too hard about or else the enormity of it ends up just paralyzing me. Um, and I, I don't generally have one moment of I don't have like a lightning bolt moment. I have little things that I collect for years and years and years and just sort of keep in my brain or keep in a document on my computer and then eventually one of them magnetizes and attracts a bunch of other things to it and it becomes it becomes a story. Um, so the origin story of the Montagues is a little convoluted in that uh, it started when I was in uh, when I was in in college um, and I was over. I lived in the UK for a little bit because, again, I wanted to do a Ph.D. and I wanted to study history and I wanted specifically to study the Wars of the Roses, which are a, an English conflict. So I went over there to work with a a social historian who specialized in the Wars of the Roses and um, specifically women's experiences in the Wars of the Roses. And there's such a like, I'm all, all conflict is very masculine <laughs> throughout history, but in particular, the Wars of the Roses are very male dominated and they're very like top tier rich people of English society fighting with each other about who's going to be king to the point that many people in the lower classes didn't even know there was a war on. Um, and I was fascinated by her work because I loved the way that she had sort of excavated women's stories from these these very on their front masculine conflicts. Um, and so that was just sort of an eye opening experience in terms of starting to think about these forgotten narratives in history. And essentially, it also just like for me cemented what I had already suspected after years of reading historical fiction featuring these these plucky young heroines, which is that everywhere in history that there are men doing things, there are also women doing things, and there are also queer people and people of color doing those things. We just don't always save or pass on those stories because sometimes it's easier to continue to pass on this myth of sort of universal oppression. Um, and so while I was over there, I, I was traveling a lot because I was uh, 20 years old and traveling like only a 20 year old can when you're when you're in Europe. So I was buying a lot of like 10 pound Ryanair flights uh, that feel like you're taking the last helicopter out of Vietnam, like they're crowded and <laughs> everyone like rushes the gate and it's terrible. And I was sleeping in these really dodgy hostels and um, slept in a, a McDonald's in Dublin once, like just like doing all the dumbest things you can only do when you're when you're that age. Um, but traveling all over Europe and getting to see all of these places and feeling very sort of, uh, I was very much buying into the the Pinteresty mythology of like the transformative power of travel on young people. Um, and then got back to the U.S. and was a little adrift because I'd sort of given up on this history PhD tract. Um, and I was finishing my history undergrad and not totally sure what I would do with it and sort of feeling like I was wasting my time. Um, when I, I was working as I worked as a TA for a, a freshman humanities course and the professor had structured this whole course around the idea of if you were a young person taking your grand tour of Europe in the 1700s, where would you go and what would you see? Um, and I'd never heard of this this grand tour concept, which is essentially 
if you were a young, rich, white guy in the 1700s and you had this awkward period of time between finishing your school and then waiting for your dad to die so that you could take over his estate, uh, how you would kill some of that time often was spending several years abroad on the continent. Um, and part of the, the idea behind it was you were supposed to learn languages and see art and develop a cultural education. And the other part of it was you were supposed to sort of sow your wild oats and uh, maybe drink yourself sick a couple of times and get that out of your system before you came back to England to be a functioning member of the peerage. Um, and I, I imprinted on this, this idea like a twilight vampire because I had just come off of doing my own sort of much differently budgeted grand tour of Europe. And so I was, I was, it was just one of those moments for me where I was like, oh my gosh, this is so, it's, it's so cool to find these moments in history that you're like, we still do that. And people don't really change. And we still travel to find ourselves when we're young. And, um, and I, I love finding those moments of connection in, in history and those, the things that make times and places feel, feel real in a way that they often don't in, in history classes. Um, and so I just sort of like fallen in love with this idea of the grand tour. And I remember kind of thinking at the time, like that would be a really fun setting for an adventure story or for an adventure novel. Somebody should write that some days. <laughs> and then uh, several years later, my my first book had come out, which is called This Monstrous Thing. Um, and it's a it's a Frankenstein, a steampunk Frankenstein reimagining, which if you want to talk about a niche market, take Frankenstein fans and then add steampunk in front of it. And you have about five readers. <laughs> so my first book had done spectacularly poorly and was wildly unread. And the only reason I got to write another book was because Harper had made the mistake of signing me up for a two book deal. And so I sort of had sold this monstrous thing and the untitled second novel. Um, and I had no idea what that untitled second novel was going to be. I was struggling with how to be an author because that's a totally different thing than being a writer. Oh, yeah. And I, everything just felt so backwards because suddenly I wasn't writing things I was passionate about and then kind of throwing it at the wall and seeing if anything stuck. Um, it was instead that from the get-go, there was an agent involved, there was an editor involved, there was a publicity team involved, there were sales numbers from a previous book that had flopped really hard. And um, so I just, everything just felt backwards and hard and I and like it was kind of stifling my creativity. And I was trying to work on the book that I had pitched to them um, initially, which was a, a punishingly sad as previously mentioned, historical <laughs> fiction novel that in Chicago steel mills in the 1890s and like everybody was sad and poor and like missing limbs and had dysentery. And it was a sad book and I was sad writing it. And I also just like couldn't get it together and couldn't figure it out. And I hit a point eventually where I was like, you know what, this is not fun anymore. I need this to be fun. I need to find a way for this to be fun again. And so I just started writing my, my favorite tropes of an adventure novel and I set it on a grand tour and essentially I was like I'm just gonna write everything I love into this book nothing is too ridiculous nothing is too silly nothing is too wild which is why there's a joke about like hook-handed masturbation in like the second chapter um <laughs> and I just like there were no rules and it was just like this is me reminding myself how to be a writer and reminding myself that writing is something fun and I enjoy um and I eventually hit a point with with Harper where they were sort of saying like you either got to restructure this entire Chicago sad book or we got to move on. We got to either rewrite it again or we got to do something else because this isn't working. Um, and I sort of went, well, I, I don't really have anything else. And I, I remember so clearly that it was like 
midnight and I was in this like shared writing space in Boston that I was working in in the time. Um, I just remember like the view looking down at the harbor and sending this email to my agent that was like, so I think I should bail on the Chicago book. I don't really have anything else except for this weird adventure novel, just like silly gooberiness that I've been writing. And here's the first chapter in a synopsis. Uh, maybe, maybe we should send that to my editor. And then about 10 minutes later, emailing my agent again and being like, actually, no, no, don't send her that. That was, it's terrible. Please don't send that to her. Um, and then about 10 minutes later, emailing her again and being like, actually, no, I think, I think you should send it. Um, and then about 10 minutes later being like, no, I don't know what I was thinking. Please don't send it to her. Um, and thankfully she was somehow awake at like one in the morning and emailed me back and said, <laughs> calm down, um, take a breath. And, uh, she was like, well, I read the first chapter and I love it. And I think, I think you should pursue this instead of the sad Chicago book. Um, and that was a long story too, but that's sort of the, that's sort of where it came from was just like being interested in things and traveling and then finding this moment of connection with people in the past who are also traveling and finding how it changed themselves, them. And then also just being a lover of lover of adventure stories. So what can people expect from the nobleman's guide to scandal and shipwrecks? If they've been following along in the series so far, where, where do we open up? It's an odd series in that it was never meant to be a series. Like I said, I wrote the first one, just sort of the first one was never meant to be a book. And then it, it existed and it came out and it did quite well. And so Harper said, do you want to write a second one? And I said, sure. Um, <laughs> with a question mark at the end. <laughs> and uh, it ended up being about, so, so the first book is about Monty, who's the main character who's traveling around uh, Europe on his grand tour with his best friend, Percy, who he's, he thinks he's secretly in love with, but it's not very secret to anyone except him. Um, and then he's also traveling with his sister Felicity, who he thinks is kind of a drip. And then eventually he real he got, you know, opens up his mind and gets to know her and, uh, discovers that she has this, uh, brilliant, passionate brain that's just not being used because she's a woman, um, in 18th century aristocracy and she wants to be a doctor. And so the second book ended up uh, being about, uh, Felicity and about her, uh, pursuit of a medical education in a very male dominated field at the time and how she ends up allying herself with uh, two very different women from very different places in Europe in order to make that that dream happen. Um, and I thought it would end there. And then I had a fan ask me during a Q&A what happened to the little brother of the family. And I sort of went, what little brother? They went, oh, in the in the first book, part of the reason Monty like has to go on this tour and then come back and be he's kind of a he's kind of a bisexual disaster at the start. And he's um, an alcoholic and he's it's a really fun book, I promise, as I list off all the like it's about alcoholism and abuse and self-hatred. <laughs> um, but it's a really fun book. Um, but part of the reason he's he's going on his tour and that what's kind of lit a fire under his ass to get his act together is that his before he'd sort of been the only estate to or the only heir to the estate and so there had never been he didn't really have any incentive to behave because he knew what his inheritance was going to be and when the book starts his parents have just had another kid unexpectedly and they just had another son so suddenly there is a there is a challenger to his title um and i had honestly forgotten that this kind of ha that this happened in in gentleman's guide um because uh the the six month old baby is not a, not a prominent character in it. I think we only hear him through the floorboards. Um, and someone asked me like, what happens to, what happens to their little brother? And immediately I was like, well, got to write that book now. Um, and so the, the, 
it's a it's an odd series, and they're all about three different characters. They can all be read as standalones, but they they function a lot better if you if you have some foundation of the the previous ones. But also, the third one takes place almost twenty years after the first one, which I think is not something that happens very often, and gave me an incredibly unique opportunity to not just like look at look at Adrian, who's the little brother, and what his life would look like, but also look at Felicity and Monty twenty years down the road and see sort of the the consequences of their actions, both good and bad, playing out. Um, because we often, you know, we end, I try to end my books on a sort of optimistic, sunny, but but fairly open note. Um, and so it was interesting to to get to revisit them as adults and, and uh, write about adults in YA, which doesn't happen very often. And um, write about them interacting with Adrian. So all of this is to say what you can expect from the Nobleman's Guide um, is a book about a family coming back together. Um, it's a book about uh, about loss and grief and losing the person who makes you feel like a person um, and who makes you feel like you're okay and what happens when that person isn't there anymore. And um, it's about it's about ghosts, both literal and figurative. Um, and it's about uh, mental illness and about living with uh, debilitating anxiety and OCD. And it's also really fun. And it's about pirates and it's about a pirate city. <laughs> and uh, there's adventure and there's machetes and there's sea monsters. And it's really fun, I promise. <laughs> and one of the great things about writing a series that was kind of not begun to be a series is that you can you could pick up book three the nobleman's guide to scandal and shipwrecks read that then go back and grab the other two and and you won't be completely lost i mean yeah it, it there there's some world building that obviously happens but you could read these out of order right i i hope so i mean i have never yeah. read them out of order so i can't really vouch for that <laughs> <laughs> but i have been assured by fans that they can be read out of order um, but yeah, the, yeah, the sort of foundational knowledge you, you need is minimal. Um, yeah. Felicity and Adrian will sort of fill you in what, on what you missed in the previous books. And with Adrian, especially like he doesn't know about what's gone on with his siblings in the previous book. So there's a lot of like, he gets filled in on stuff along with the reader. Um, and then the, the things you, the, the, it's just sort of like Easter eggs is what's there for the yeah. things. Um, my, my parents just read Nobleman's Guide and they had both read Gentleman's Guide and Lady's Guide. And we were talking about it the other night and I was pointing out like, oh, and did you catch this? Cause they, you'd read the previous ones and they were both like, no. And I was like, oh, well that person's in, well, did you catch this thing from the previous books? And they were like, no. And I was like, you read the previous books. And they were like, we don't remember them. So even <laughs> if you've read them and don't remember them, apparently you can still have a great experience with Nobleman's Guide. Oh, that's funny. Well, The Nobleman's Guide to Scandal and Shipwrecks, uh, when you're hearing this, is available everywhere. We're going to have links to it in the show notes where you can grab it in Kindle edition or hardcover or audiobook. However you like to consume your books, you can grab it in whatever format works best for you. Uh, Mackenzie, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, I, I know you have a fantastic website. Is that the best place for people to connect with you or are there other places? Yeah, you can check me out. My website's got all the official stuff. Um, I'm on Instagram at the Mackenzie Lee, um, and it's a little bit more personal on social media. Um, not so like formal formal bios and formal descriptions of of everything. Can I shout out in particular the audio versions of the series because absolutely, I'm a big audiobook reader. I've been an audiobook reader since I was a kid. 
my parents bought my sister and I both little cassette players shaped like Sesame Street buses. Um, and we would both just walk around our house constantly listening to books on tape, uh, which is that's my dates me. But um, I loved audiobooks as a kid. And then as an adult, have kind of come back to them, especially through and I'm going to shout them out to Libro.fm which is a company that is functions the same as Audible, except your money that you spend on audiobooks goes back to your in, local independent bookstore instead of to Amazon. Um, and I'm a big proponent of shopping local and shopping small. So uh, thanks to Libro, I've gotten back into audiobooks and especially over the past two years of pandemic, when I felt like my brain was just like turning to mush and running out my ears, audiobooks were the only way that I got any reading done. And so I've done tons of audiobooks over the past couple of years. And because of how much I love audiobooks, when when Gentleman's Guide was coming out, I really, really wanted there to be an audio edition of it. And uh, Monstrous Thing, because again, it didn't didn't sell super well. Um, there was no audiobook edition of it. And so my, my strategy with Gentleman's Guide was like, I'm just going to bother them until they agree to do an audiobook. So I was just like emailing my editor every day. And I was like, hey, when's there going to be an audiobook? Do you, have you guys made a decision about the audiobook yet? Do you know anything more about the audiobook? Uh, when am I going to start talking about that audiobook? And eventually <laughs> I just wore them down. Um, and they gave me not only an audiobook, but like the best audiobook anyone's ever had. It's uh, the first and third one are both narrated by uh, a, an actor named Christian Coulson. Um, and he is British and charming and perfect for these books. I don't understand why he doesn't get hired to do like every British period audiobook ever because his voice is so perfect for it. And he's so expressive and lovely. And I've, I've talked to him since and we've become friends and, um, He's talked about how much he loves the books and you can really tell in his reading. He's just, he's a fantastic narrator and he's perfect for these books. And so he does both uh, Gentleman's Guide and Nobleman's Guide, as well as there's a little novella that he did an audio version of. And then the middle one, which is narrated by Felicity, they they got a woman named Moira Quirk, which A, is the greatest name in the history of names. Like you can never make up a fictional name better than Moira Quirk. Um, and she, I was already a fan of hers because she does the audiobooks for like Gail Carriger's books. Um, she just did uh, Gideon the Ninth and Harrow the Ninth, which are two of my favorite books from the past couple years. Um, and she also is just spectacular. So I feel like I like hit the audiobook jackpot. And I always tell people, if you're an audiobook reader, the audio versions of these books are the best versions of these books that exist because both Christian and Moira, I feel like took everything I was trying to do and then did it better. Um, and they make it funny in places I didn't mean for it to be funny. They make it so emotional and sentimental and sweet and they're both just performers and I'm, I'll stop now, but I just, I'm obsessed with my own audiobooks for this series. I love it. So definitely pick up the, the audio book. Um, you've, you can't get a, a more sterling endorsement than than what Mackenzie just shared about it. Uh, Mackenzie, this has been so much fun chatting. We're going to send everyone to pick up their copy of the the Nobleman's Guide to Scandal and Shipwrecks. Thank you so much for, for taking time to come on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This was a fun conversation. Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Glebe's The Jason Crane Series. Jason ate Thanksgiving dinner alone at the Horseman Restaurant. He had the place to himself. Everyone else had somewhere to be. He picked at his burger and fries, thinking of meals past. Thanksgiving had always been Eliza's favorite holiday, as Halloween had always been his. Jason glanced at the menu propped at his elbow. The horseman with his hand held high, carrying a tray with burgers and a shake. The horseman he'd seen on Halloween was no cartoon. 
That horseman was a thing of crematorium ash, of grave clothes and withered grass, riding a horse of autumn leaves and snail shells and pieces of skull. Jason's hand rose to the tender stripe of skin on his neck. The hatchet cut. You okay, honey? Jennifer, the waitress, appeared at his elbow. She had dyed her hair since he'd first met her. A pink stripe ran through the gray now, as if she had stuck her head in a cotton candy machine. Yeah, I'm... I'm full. She raised an eyebrow. That bad, huh? Jason glanced at his plate, still piled with food. Just not hungry. You know, I saw the headless horseman once, said Jennifer, refreshing Jason's cup. She glanced about, deciding something. She set the pot down on a nearby table and slid into Jason's booth with some difficulty, sucking her belly in. I've seen him, she whispered. Just like you. When? Oh, ten years ago. Jason glanced around to see if the cooks or busboys were watching, to see if she was playing a prank. Where? he asked, trying to sound casual. East of here. Sam and I used to live out on Sawmill River Road. I worked at my daddy's Applebee's franchise, you know. It's still there. Daddy sold it, though. It was around Halloween time and I was coming off shift. It had been a night, believe me. Parties of like twenty. We sang to the little brats, happy, happy birthday from all of us at Applebee's. The horseman? Right. She produced cigarettes. Do you mind? Jason shook his head. Thanks. Don't tell the smoke police. Jason slid the saucer from beneath his coffee mug to serve as an ashtray. It was about midnight, probably. I counted my tips. And those little bastards stiff you, by the by. So I wasn't in a good mood. I was waiting for Sam to pick me up. I was smoking in the parking lot, trying not to catch my hair on fire, and I heard this thunder coming down the Pacantico Hills from the direction of the hollow. Rumble, rumble, rumble. But it was clear out, and the sound got closer and closer. We had a full moon that night, hanging over the top of the ridge, and I saw him come up the other side, this black shape on a horse, fast as the devil late for church. He was down the hill before I knew it, coming right at me, and he jumped Sawmill River. Kaboom! And when he reached the parking lot, I saw. She drew one finger across her neck. Nothing. No head. And it wasn't any real horse, either. Too damn fast. He was in a hurry. Didn't even see me. Whoosh! My apron blew up. The dumpster started rolling. Car alarms. Blew out my damn cigarette. He shot across the field. Beeline due east. Never saw anything like it. So... She patted Jason's hand. I know you're getting laughed at. But not by me. She stubbed her cigarette in the saucer. Some of us believe you. <laughs>